Welcome to Books and Beyond with your host, Alison. Join us for half an hour of information, entertainment, reading recommendations and beyond. Brought to you by Auckland Libraries. I know this girl. No my Haida my Kiara and welcome to our Books and Beyond Literary Lounge with Alison and Inika. Brought to you from our home studios. Kiara Inika. Hello, Alison. Well, look, I've, I finally got my words out there. So now, from talking to you earlier on today, Inika, it sounds as though we've um, both spent the last couple of weeks converting our TBR lists into our lists. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, um, in between everything else we've had going on, there has been quite a bit of reading going on. Yes, I know. We're amazing how we get it all fitted in. We but, really um, are amazing. <laughs> we do have heaps to report on and and to recommend today. So, absolutely, get, you're going to kick us off, right? Yeah. So I'll get us um, kicked off. So, look, I've got one that I really want to. I've been so excited to talk to you about this one, and it's called Not Quite White by a writer called Lila Wusia, and it's published this year, 2022. And now, it's a heartbreaking yet touching memoir about growing up in Wales in the 1990s and beyond as a person of mixed ethnicity. So now, Lila Wusia is just an amazing writer, amazing all-round person. They're a British author, performer, musician and artist who was born in London but grew up in rural Wales. Now, Lila identifies as non-binary and queer and now is back living in London, living and creating art in London. So Lila was born 31 years ago to a white American mother and a Mauritian Indian father, both of whom were immigrants to the UK. And Lila was the only brown kid at school, um, on one hand being an object of curiosity, and on the other, um, they were a kid who was bullied for being weird and a loser um, and for being smart, wearing glasses and having visible body hair. Now, after 9-11, they were bullied for being a terrorist. And, you know, this is not uncommon, Mm. so sadly. So, um, in other words, school was a deeply unhappy experience for Lila. People would ask things like, where are you from? Followed quickly by, but no, but where are you really from? Mm. You know, when Lila would say, well, I'm from London or I'm from Wales. Where are you Mm. really from? And then no one could ever spell or pronounce the surname Wuzia. Um, And that, you know, just was endless on and on and on. Now, it wasn't until the family took a trip to Mauritius that some of the pieces of the family puzzle started to fall into place for Lila. But also, there was this acknowledgement that being biracial was deeply, was a deeply traumatic experience. There'd always been a feeling for Lila of never being enough. I'm not enough. Mm. And Lila um, began to experience this bizarre phenomenon known as fetishization. I have trouble saying that. And that was um, when Lila was in their 20s in the dating world. So um, meeting people on Tinder who would say things like, you look so exotic, can you cook me a curry? Or Mm. it's on my bucket list to date a brown person. And it went on and on. Just, Just awful. 
But it's really, really interesting to hear Lila talk about all this experience. And Lila feels that social media has actually improved things for mixed-race kids to some extent. And this surprised me, actually. Um, those kids who are being bullied or fetishised can talk and learn about colonisation, representation, structural racism, and, and find out that they're, they're not alone. And because those kids like Lila who grew up in the 90s suffered terrible isolation and blame for for things that were, you know, geopolitical mm. events in the world. And then if you were a gay kid on top of things, it was just so much worse. So, look, this is a must-read memoir. It's about survival and it's about finding family. And there's enough humour and lightness in the narrative to get you through the trauma. But in saying that, you know, I don't think white people should be protected from reading about intergenerational racial trauma. Um, we, I just dropped my mouse. I don't know if you heard that. Now, um, as white people, I don't think we deserve a free pass on this one. Um, it's, you know, it's really good for us to read a memoir and experience the feelings as a call to action, I reckon. Mm. So now I listened to the audiobook of, of Not Quite White and it was read by the author and it's, I just can't recommend it highly enough. It was really something. Sounds great, Alison. Um, and then you've been getting into audiobooks, haven't you? And, and listening to a lot more uh, yes, recently. I- Yes, I have. And I've just, they're just amazing. If for any reason, like, you know, if you're sick or something and you can't feel as though you can't read or if you're multitasking, Mm. um, yeah, they're, they're a wonderful thing. Oh, fantastic. Well, uh, my next one is interesting. It actually shares some, um, some of the same topics, um, that you found in your memoir, um, not quite white. Um, I, uh, about a month ago now, I read How to Be a Bad Muslim by Muhammad Hassan. Now, um, Muhammad Hassan, um, this book is his first nonfiction collection and it was published in 2022, so just released. And it's a personal essay collection looking at his own experience of being Muslim in the 21st century. Now, Muhammad Hassan, um, he moved from Cairo to the um, Auckland's North Shore as a child when, in the mid-90s with his family. Now, he found um, a great sense of community and success within the world of stand-up poetry as a young teenager and going into his, um, his early 20s. And now he um, he was based in Auckland um, and he now travels the world as a journalist, a writer and a producer of, um, of lots of different content, actually. He has a poetry collection um, that came out, uh, I think, last year um, and he has really fabulous, fabulous writer and across so many different um, of areas of writing. So this one comes highly recommended. It's extremely insightful and poetic collection. It has beautiful portraits of his family and friends um, in amongst the mix as well. Now, he covers a lot, a, quite a wide-ranging um, patch of topics. Um, the very first essay in the collection is called Subscribe to PewDiePie. Now, um, older listeners or um, may may not know who PewDiePie is, um, but PewDiePie is a top-ranking YouTuber. Um, now, he is someone who flirts with the alt-right and uh, white supremacy via lots of stunts and insider jokes and meme culture. And he's done this for many years. And he has this legion of mostly young, mostly male fans. Um, 
Hassan's essay on PewDiePie looks at the way that um, his his sort of edgy edgy humour and um, hot takes on things can be misconstrued by his by his fans and how um, the the long lasting damage and effects of these kinds of of um, conversations um, going out of control and uncontrolled on the web basically. As Hassan says, to be included in the zeitgeist, you had to have the stomach to joke about dead babies and the Holocaust. So this is the kind of um, of rhetoric that's been used in um, in PewDiePie's, uh, yeah, wildly successful YouTube channel. Mm. Now. Hassan looks at the subgroup of angry young men who who do follow PewDiePie, um, who are hiding lots of hatred and misogyny within their edgy memes, and then they're moving, taking that and moving into darker territories. Um, you know, hate crime, rape, death threats. Um, he also um, looks at the role of the platforms and their algorithms, which are feeding more and more of this kind of extreme content to the impressionable people mm-hmm. out there, particularly the young uh, or the disenfranchised, who then go on to take real action in the real world. Mm-hmm. This this essay ends with a really um, devastating, searing kind of portrait study mm-hmm. of the man who planned, carried out and live-streamed the Christchurch massacres. Mm-hmm. So bringing it back to that... Um, the impact on the Muslim community, bringing it back to Mm. his own community. In the book, there's some beautiful essays which look at his um, his family's history. Um, he he uh, looks at Cairo. His um, his family were based mm-hmm. in Cairo, and he um, he describes the the stories of some of the people in his family who still live in Cairo. Um, on Cairo itself, as a city, he says, and this is a beautiful example of his his just poetic writing. He says, anyone with weapons and ambition has tried to take it. It mm. being Cairo. It's people, rough diamonds carved under thousands of years of pressure, laugh with their eyes and dream in the ashes. So mm. Absolutely beautiful um, yeah. phrase in this book. Um, like Leila Wuzia, um, he has an essay in the book um, which looks at the um, the kind of long-lasting and reaching impacts of 9-11 on the Muslim community. Mm. Um, in an essay titled A Stranger in No Man's Land, he talks about the fact that airports were always a safe and neutral place for him, um, you know, full of possibility and excitement mm. and adventure. But they became a darker place of a no man's land of random searches, bans on travel from Muslim-majority countries. And this was all post-9-11, um, and then it sort of simmered down a bit and then came back into the fore under yeah. Trump in 2016. So endlessly he found himself flagged as a Muslim first and then as a journalist um, due to the geopolitical machinations that were going on in the Middle East. Mm. Um, A short quote from this particular essay paraphrased here. um, I walk through terminals with a smile I stretch around my ears. It is a mask I wear to protect myself from suspicion, to protect others from fear. I don't want Mm. to think of my identity as a virus. So very powerful, um, powerful uh, words, powerful statements. And amongst this book, um, we also have some lighter topics. He um, he gets into how um, he got at first got into stand up poetry, supported by Ken Arkin and the South Auckland Poets Collective. Um, he looks at um, his fascination with music and how that's brought um, him a wonderful base of friends. Um, and he looks at his career so far, as well as um, some beautiful family histories and and stories. It sounds fascinating. And, and, you know, it's one that's still on my TBR list. I really want to read that. Mm. 
Yeah, just be- as you say, the turn of phrase is is beautiful. Well, look, it's not that much of a stretch to jump over to the one that I wanted to talk about next, and you'll see why towards the end of, of what I'm going to say about the book. So now I've just um, read, and because I, I waited for this for ages, I was so <laughs> happy when it arrived. And it's called Joan is Okay. And it's a novel by the writer Waiki Wang. Um, and she's an American writer. And this was published in 2022. So now this is um, Waiki Wang's new book. Um, she wrote the critically acclaimed and an all-round amazing book called Chemistry, which we talked about earlier in the year. I remember year. that, yes. Yeah. Um, now, like the book Chemistry, this is a book about the day-to-day life experiences of young Asian Americans who are the children of immigrants. Now, in the book, our main character, Joan, is a 30-something intensive care doctor at at a busy hospital in New York. She's massively devoted to her work and her patients and is quite happy living a single, kind of solitary life. She's very eccentric. Um, She's a real individual, you could put it that way. She does sometimes wonder where her roots truly lie. Are they at the hospital where her white coat and and stethoscope make her feel needed and valued? Or are they with her family who try to mould her life according to their cultural and social expectations as immigrants to America? So we, you see that Joan's parents initially moved to the United States to secure the American dream for their two children. And now that Joan and her brother are well established in their careers, Joan's parents returned to China and they planned to live out the rest of their days in their homeland because they had discovered that America is brutal for Asian immigrants. Mm. So there's no real surprises there. So Joan lives and works in in a comfort zone of sorts, although I think she even she would admit she's lonely. Now, things take quite a turn um, when Joan's father suddenly dies back in China. So Joan and her brother, Fung, rush back to Shanghai for the funeral. But Joan only stays for a couple of days. She feels the need to get back to New York and to to bury herself in her work. Mm. But um, to complicate things, fairly soon after this, Joan's mother decides to relocate to New York so she can spend more time with Joan and her brother Fung. And this is not really what Joan and Fung want. So gradually memories start to surface for Joan and they they seep through all of her protective layers and and into her consciousness. Mm. She remembers things like, as a child, having to speak for her parents to those in authority because her English is so much better than theirs and being really aware of the accented English of immigrants and the, that belief in America that broken pronunciation implied a broken mind. Mm. Unless, of course, the accent was English or French, which then meant that the speaker was was posh <laughs> and someone to be celebrated. <laughs> it's quite heartbreaking. And Joan's mother had a job cleaning white people's homes and she'd sometimes take Joan along so that Joan could quickly address any concerns about the service provided. So questions would come thick and fast like, is that an eco-friendly cleaner you're using? I hope those cleaning prob- products don't contain phthalates or ammonia. Uh-huh. 
And so Joan would, would help answer those questions. And she says in it that this was her first um, introduction to science in chemistry, the, <laughs> the chemistry of cleaning products. So and then Joan would help her father understand correspondence from the bank when he was applying for business loans. And she remembers explaining to him what aforementioned means. I don't think I could even explain that (laughs) easily (laughs) off the top of my head. So, you know, children of immigrants have to grow up so fast, don't they? Mm. So now even though Joan was a capable kid, she always felt less than, or was always having so much to prove, um, having to be twice as good as her peers to get half the recognition When she got accepted into Harvard University Med School, for example, people's assumptions were that she didn't get there on her own merit, but as part of some sort of diversity quota. Mm. So her life was just littered with microaggressions. But um, soon after Joan's mother comes back to live in New York, a series of events send her spiralling out of the comfort zone, just as Joan's hospital, the city and the world are forced to reckon with a health crisis more devastating than anyone could have imagined. Joan watches in horror as news of COVID first surfaces in Wuhan, China, and as COVID quickly spreads across the globe. And as an Asian American, Joan, she'd experienced the feeling before that she neither belonged to America or nor her um, to China. But her experiences of these everyday microaggressions were nothing compared to the racism and blame she begins to face as COVID takes hold. Mm, Look, this is a brilliant book. It's full of humour and hurt, and it's about coming to terms with who you are and, and where you're from. Now, Waiki Wang has a unique and a powerful voice. I tell you what, she's a writer of substance. She mm. is amazing. Is this one of your picks of the year, Alison? I think it would be, yes. Yep, it's going to be definitely on my top 100 for the year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's grand, yep. I reckon I might have a contender too. This this is um, this was one that was very powerful for me as a read. Um, now I've just finished reading a crime um, novel called Notes on an Execution by Dania Kukafka, and this is from 2022. And you can find it on the catalogue under Adult Fiction. Now. Notes on an execution. Um, it jumps uh, on a timeline back and forth across 50 years. But when we first meet Ansel Packer, his family, and the women who have crossed his path over his lifetime, we find out that this has been occasionally for the better, but in the vast majority for the absolute worst. The book starts hot and grabby. We're introduced to Ansel 12 hours just before his execution of, for the murder of multiple women. So Ansel is a serial killer, our main character. Now, interestingly, um, Kukafka in the book um, places Ansel's own story um, from the second perspective. So it's always you in the book whenever we're looking at Ansel's story. So you're getting a glimpse into his own thoughts and perspectives on his life and his fate. And as you can imagine, those are, um, you know, very, very securely kind of twisted in his own favour. Yeah, We then get to jump back into Ansel's origin story. So he's been born and raised in a violent and deprived home in the backwoods of upstate New York. 
His teenage mother does manage to escape her abusive husband, um, but she doesn't have the capacity to go back and rescue her sons. So she leaves three-year-old Ansel alone in the cabin with his newborn brother. They are eventually discovered and taken into foster care, um, but he is forever changed by this experience. Absolutely. And And it's in foster care that he meets two girls whose fates will end up being forever linked to his. Now, Ansel's got a seeming inability to feel empathy, and he has, of course, got this traumatic early childhood experience um, in his in his past. And now, it really does paint a picture of him as a classic psychopath. He can be um, quite charming when it suits him, and then he can deal out this swift and brutal punishment and then move on, compartmentalizing mm-hmm. it as his own head. Um, he's very much minimizes his crimes, and he seems to have no sympathy for his victims. He does like so many of these um, sorts of people, he builds a, the pseudo kind of intellectual case for his actions um, and he's got his own manifesto that he spends a lot of time writing um, to justify his actions um, while he's in jail. But this, this story is not just Ansel's. As the clock is ticking down towards his execution, and you do get those, you know, the, the clock is ticking down mm. as his chapters pop up in the book, we're visiting and returning to the women whose lives and decisions have been have shaped his his own and have been shaped by his. So you're jumping into their, their lives as the years go by. We jump into his mother Lavender's life. Um, she's now a long-term resident of a Californian women-only commune, and she forever wonders what happened to her little boys, but she's just too afraid to find out, although she holds a lot of hope that they have a, have had a happier life without her than they would have had with her. We also um, visit Hazel, who's the twin sister of Jenny. Now, Jenny falls for and marries Ansel. And at the time, Hazel is enviously watching on, thinking that, that Jenny's, you know, made it. But, of course, Jenny comes to regret that marriage to Ansel. And then we also visit with Safi. Now, Safi is a police detective who, over decades, has been pursuing the unsolved um, case of three girls who went missing um, from the same general area in the same year in 1977 and whose childhood encounter with Ansel is fixed firmly in her memory. Now, the whole mythos and kind of grim fascination that the media and many people have around serial killers is a key element in this book. So Safi's really um, finds herself over time struck by the essential mediocrity of these men who, who seem to, you know, wield such power and control over people. And it has to be said, the vast majority of serial killers are men, as mm. we know. Mm. But also that devastating effect that they can have on any anyone who comes into their reach. You know, often they're driven by anger, humiliation, um, depraved sexual kind of fascinations, but they're essentially egotistical and have a deep-seated lack of care for others. But at the same time, they are still very unremarkable people. Mm. And she does a, Kukafka does this really interesting job of paralleling um, this, the kind of notion of the serial killer with Safi's own experience of trying to advance in the police force. So Safi is often fending off racist and sexist insults. Um, she's um, of South and um, East Asian origin. Um, and she's always having to clean up the mess of these mishandled cases where male colleagues have made mistakes or made poor judgment in the field. And they continue to rise up the ranks while she has, is left to kind of clean up their mistakes. 
Now, time and the notion of parallel and alternative paths and lives are really crucial in this book. As I said, you've got the countdown um, to Ansel's execution. And in the women's stories over the years, you get both their actual stories and also some little kind of brief snapshots of imagined lives um, because some of these girls' stories stop before they can become mm. the women that they might have become. Um, the book is compellingly written. It's suspenseful. It's empathetic. It is really strong before you knew my name oh, vibes. Yes. Jacqueline Bublitz. Um, yes. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I'll just end with a couple of quotes to listen to this one. There would be no story for these girls alone. They are relevant because of Ansel and the fascination the world has for men like him. Now, in the book, Safi's really haunted by the other lives that those other girls would have had, and she says, but they do not live in that world, and they do not live in this one. Wow, that sounds so powerful. It was a great read. I read it in pretty much one sitting. It was very, very good read. Yes, and I think you're right. I think that's um, a contender for mm. one of our books of the year. That's so right, and oh. that sweet spot between literary and crime, you know, yes. psychological thriller, and yeah, yeah. And there is that sort of beautiful but very disturbing spot, isn't there? Mm. In, in that place, yeah. Oh wow. Well, look. After all of all of our books today, because they've been a little bit on the grim side. But I thought we could end on a a lighter note, if that suited you. That's good. So, look, I've just read a frothy rom-com, and I want to tell you all about it. (laughs) Now, it's called, um, it just published this year, and it's called Delilah Green Doesn't Care, and it's by a writer called Ashley Herring-Blake. Now, this um, rom- frothy romance, it um, contains characters from the entire rainbow of life experience. The action is centred around an upcoming society wedding in small town America, and the preparations for the nuptials are ghastly, <coughs> to put it mildly. So the preparations involve two weeks of whining, dining, hen's nights, facials, many petties en masse, vineyard tours, besties who can hardly stand each other, estranged exes, friends from high school who now have nothing in common, bad boys, hotties, and a mother-in-law from hell. Now, this sounds like something that you'd be wanting to be part of, Annika, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Two weeks, you say. Two weeks. (laughs) Not just even one week and it's two weeks. So, oh, it just sounds like a nightmare. So our 30-something bride-to-be Astrid, who is shallow and quite rich, um, guilt trips her estranged stepsister Delilah into coming down from New York, where she lives and works as a struggling artist, (laughs) and photographing the entire train wreck, that entire two weeks. Now, this deal is is sweetened or or poisoned, depending on how you look at it, with a five-figure check. So, you know, it's made fairly attractive. (laughs) So now, Delilah, who just happens to be queer, quirky and quite hot, um, Delilah swore that she would never, ever set foot in Bright Falls, Oregon again after she'd had such an unhappy upbringing there. The New York scene is, is more her jam. It's totally her jam, actually. But this large wad of cash from a stepsister and tormentor, Astrid, seals the deal. Because New York, as we know, is very expensive. 
Now, so Delilah plans that she's going to just breeze into Bright Falls and spend the bare minimum of time with the crew, document the shenanigans and then get the hell out. But then she meets one of the bridesmaids, Claire, whose hands are full dealing with her unreliable ex, raising her 11-year-old daughter on her own and running the local bookstore. And added to that for Claire, the bridesmaid's duties are interminable and become more and more unbearable when it becomes obvious that Astrid's fiancé is just horrible. (laughs) Although, of course, he is very hot, so (laughs) I don't know if that makes it better or worse, but um, he is. So, now the book, it's hilarious, it's full of tropes, but they are presented in quite a refreshing way. Claire and Lila initially irritated by each other, but as the gauntlet of wedding preparation grinds on, they gradually find that there is a smouldering attraction forming between them. And it's kind of a will-they-won't-they kind of scenario, but I won't spoil the fun and um, (laughs) tell you what happens. But look, this is a book that asks that age-old question about romance. What do you do when you're comfortably solo yet lonely and then you meet someone who could be the one? Do you risk everything, throw caution to the wind and and get your glasses all steamed up? (laughs) Or do you just stay where you are? So, look, this is a very clever comedy about taking chances. It was such a fun read, and I do believe it's going to have very broad appeal. But particularly if you'd liked, for people who liked Casey McQuiston's Red, White and Royal Blue or Emily Henry's Book Lovers, you're going to love this one. So, look, to our readers, I just want to thank you for tuning in today and thank you to you, Inika. This has been been great. So take care and and happy reading. Haerera, kakite anō. This program was brought to you by Auckland Libraries. Find us online at aucklandlibraries.govt.nz and catch the program next Sunday at 9.35pm on 104.6 FM or anytime online at planetaudio.org.nz slash books and beyond. Every day, every day, every day.